Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all, to be with you all again. It's been a few weeks. I know that some of you are on Zoom and some of you are in person, so welcome to uh, everyone, uh, wherever you're coming in from. So, well, we're working through 1 John, and uh, we're near the end. We've got this passage and one more sermon left before we're done with the epistle. And uh, the big theme for this passage is testimony. And so we're going to spend a few minutes exploring that. Uh, I'm going to read to you our passage, which is also printed in the bulletin. Uh, You can listen along, read along, whatever is best for you. This is 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we bless you and give you thanks for your word. We pray that it would be to us a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're nearing the end of the epistle, and uh, John is working to gather his thoughts and tell us what is of most importance to him. And if we had to search for a single word that would capture the big idea of this passage, and even the larger theme of this letter, it would be testimony. Uh, The word testimony occurs 10 times alone just in this passage. Uh, That is more times than any other uh, part of John's, not only his writings, but his entire corpus. And if you remember how the letter opens up, John is telling us that he has been a witness to things and that he is writing this letter to testify to his audience. Testimony is what this letter is about and is what the central theme is for this passage. John is communicating something of chief importance to us. And if you're like me, the topic of testimony might seem a little abstract or a little esoteric. And so I want to venture to you a few examples of how we experience testimony in our day-to-day. If you were to come to me right now and ask me, John, what time is it? And I were to do this and I were to say, it's 11.28. That would be an experience of testimony. If you were to go to a friend and say, how was that restaurant you tried the other day? Or how was that Netflix show? Do you recommend eating there or watching the show? And they said, yes, very good food, you must eat there. Or very good show, you got to watch the show. That would be an experience of testimony. If somebody were to run into this room and shout, fire! That would also be an experience of testimony. Testimony is something that we experience day in and day out. And importantly, it calls us to action. When someone comes running into this room, whether you're sitting or you're standing or running for the door, you're responding in action. 
Testimony brings us into confrontation with the world around us and forces us to make a decision. When John is talking about testimony here, he is talking about a confrontation with God himself and the decisions we're faced with. We're going to explore and parse out some of what John has to say about this topic for a few more minutes. We have three big ideas about what testimony actually is. The first big idea is that testimony is how we believe in God. When we believe in God, it's through testimony. This is how John puts it in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him to be a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. John is telling us that the reason we believe is because in some way we've responded to testimony about God. And that the reason we choose not to believe is similarly, it's because we chose to disbelieve a certain kind of testimony. What John is telling us is that trust is a fundamental element of how testimony works. You can either trust the testimony you hear or you distrust it, but there is no third option. When somebody comes running into the room shouting fire, some people are running towards the exits, other people are kind of looking around like this. Whether you're sitting in your seats or running for the doors, you've made a decision. And that's what happens when we hear testimony about God. We are deciding one way or the other. And John tells us that there are two elements to how we respond to God's testimony concerning his son. One is an objective element, and the other is a subjective element. To say that testimony is objective means that there is something out there in the world that we are responding to. John tells us that we believe in the Son of God. That's because the Son of God is someone out there that we are confronted with. It is the fact that Jesus is the Son of God who's entered the world and died for our sins that is the object of our faith. When someone is giving you a testimony, they are assuming objective facts about the world that are being testified to. If you go to your friend and you ask them how a certain sports event was and describe uh, how the game went, who won or who lost, what is happening is they're describing an actual event that happened out there in the world. And this objective element keeps our spirituality from devolving into a kind of mere sentimentalism. It's something that keeps us outside of ourselves, keeping us from only focusing on the ways we experience God, only focusing on our emotions. Testimony draws us out of ourselves and establishes a genuine encounter with God working on history, and our trust in him is the basis for this. Trust and faith are not feelings we have to muster. They're postures that we have towards objective reality. But the fact that God has acted in history doesn't mean that this is all there is to testimony. John tells us that there is also a subjective element to testimony. John tells us that testimony is something that is in us. This is just a colorful way of saying that the testimony about Jesus is something that we have to internalize. John is telling us to imagine it being in a way that it's actually inside of us in some way. And John here is pushing against a kind of mere intellectualism. It's not enough to say that we uh, think Jesus is God, that he came into the world and he died for sinners. We have to go further than that and say that he did these things for me. Jesus came into the world for me. Jesus died on the cross for me. That these benefits are all mine. I'm a beneficiary of these. 
And as John is describing to us testimony, he has these two pulls he wants us to keep in mind, both the facts out there in the world and the ways that we're supposed to internalize these facts as well. John moves on in this passage to give shape to the actual content of the testimony that we're believing in. And this leads to our second point, that the content of the testimony is that of a gift. The testimony that we're to believe in is some kind of gift to the world. And the first way that we experience this gift is the gift of eternal life. Let me read to you how John puts this in verse 11. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is his son. John here is describing to us what eternal life looks like. And this phrase is something that we might have heard a number of times, whether you're used to church lingo or not. And it might uh, make us think that what John is describing here is a kind of immortality. Jesus came into the world to give us immortality. And while that's certainly a feature of what eternal life is, we have to think to ourselves, what is the only thing that is actually eternal in this world? And the only thing that is eternal in this world is God himself. When God is saying that he is offering to the world eternal life, what he's talking about is that there is a kind of life that he has enjoyed since eternity that he is looking to gift into the world. That kind of life is the intrapersonal relationships that exist within the Trinity. Unconditional love, joyful deference, and freedom from things like pain, death, and sin. And what's being gifted to us is this Trinitarian life. But this Trinitarian life is not the kind of force that we're supposed to tap into. It is presented to us in the person of Jesus. John tells us at the end of verse 11 that Jesus is this eternal life. What John is telling us is that this life has been enjoyed by him and the Father and that they're extending it into the world through the gift of Jesus, his Son. And the way God enters into the world is not by offering us uh, opportunities for enlightenment or a code of conduct to live by or transcendent experiences. The Father is gifting to the world his very favorite thing, which is his relationship he has with his Son. The favorite thing that the Father enjoys, the relationship he has with the Son, is what he wants to gift to us into this world. A relationship marked by mutual and unconditional love. And there are many kinds of testimonies we hear about in our day and our weeks. And this kind of testimony about this gift, it's something that's supposed to be unprecedented. It's supposed to catch our ear. We're supposed to lean in. We're supposed to have some wonder and curiosity about it. Be interested in it. We're supposed to ask questions because the relationship that has existed from eternity, which consists of unconditional adoration and love, is now something that we're invited into. We have an opportunity to experience this, to be recipients of this through the gift of Jesus to us. John develops this idea, and this is our third point, about how this gift actually is presented to us and how we experience this. And we do so by observing the ministry of Jesus. And to appreciate this, we need to think a little bit about the context of uh, this letter. Who is written to? Uh, John is writing to the church of Ephesus, uh, who is struggling with a kind of thought called Jewish Gnosticism. And they was being proposed by a person named Serenthus, who was saying that Jesus was born a mere man. 
and that at his baptism, Christ, who was a divine spirit, came and rested on Jesus and stayed with him throughout his whole life. And at the crucifixion of Jesus, Christ the Spirit abandoned Jesus, and Jesus died a mere man. And Serenthus regularly used language of water and blood to describe this. He didn't believe that Jesus was a pre-existent person. He thought Jesus and Christ were separated beings who happened to share a life together for a short amount of time. And this matters for our understanding of testimony because John is in dialogue with this train of thought and trying to argue against it. Let me read to you the passage where he does this. This is verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. John is telling us that there are two ways that Jesus appears or uh, you can witness to Jesus, and that is through the water and the blood. But what is the water and the blood? Well, one way people have thought about this is that this is pointing to the sacraments. Uh, water would be baptism, blood would be the Lord's Supper. Famous thinkers like Luther and Calvin have uh, held this position. Uh, while I think that we can say that this passage makes inferences to the sacraments, uh, I don't think that this is what John is actually talking about here in this passage. What John is talking about is Jesus coming to the world. Uh, this is a past event that has happened in history, and elsewhere in his epistle, he is uh, describing uh, Jesus' incarnation and earthly ministry with the same language of him coming into the world. More than that, we have to realize that John is in dialogue with uh, these Gnostic thinkers, and this was vernacular that would have been native to them and their hearers. So what does this language of water and blood actually mean? Well, water is referring to the baptism of Jesus. And in order to appreciate how the baptism of Jesus might actually testify to the ministry of Jesus, testify to his divinity, we need to actually look at John's gospel account of the baptism. And John the Baptist, who is a prophetic character in the gospels, sees Jesus and exclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. And then John the Baptist goes on to say that Jesus outranks him because of his pre-existence. The pre-existence, which would have been denied by the Gnostics, was not a philosophical point for John the Baptist. It was something that made Jesus being worthy of worship and honor. Jesus has authority, power, and brevity because he precedes all of us, because he's been around longer than all of us, is what John is saying. And then John recounts how the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, symbolizing the approval of the Father and the oneness of the Trinity, all points that Gnostic thinkers would have disbelieved in. The other part of the testimony of Jesus was the blood, which is his crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus is not a chapter in the Gospel of John, but it is the defining element that drives the whole story. And when we consider the death of Jesus, it's harder to see how this actually testifies. With the crucifixion of Jesus, there is no dove descending from heaven. There is no prophet declaring the divinity of Jesus. But John makes his points to us by story and images rather than giving us a lecture. And John, in his gospel, is intent on contrasting 
the innocence of Jesus and the injustice of his death. But how does John testify that Jesus is the Son of God given his innocence and the injustice of his death? The answer can be illustrated by turning to an unlikely character in the Gospels. That is the executioner of Jesus. During Jesus' whole mystery, ministry, he was trying to find people who really understood who he was. And the problem is that they uh, always underestimated him or overestimated him. They never thought highly enough of his humility and they never thought uh, uh, highly enough of his divinity either. But the one man who certainly did that with uh, full certainty was the man who executed him. And if you remember what he says, after he put the nails in Jesus' hands and suspended him on the cross, he's standing before the man he had just unjustly murdered, and he says out loud, surely this man was the son of God. It is the lonely, brutal, and unjust death of Jesus that makes him so compelling to us. It's what testifies to his divinity. It is on the cross that we discover the depth of God's love for the loveless. Most of us have such little love for those that are already easy to love. Even the best of us have love that will eventually fail and run out. Jesus has a love for us and for the world that is quite literally otherworldly. We find in his humble and loving submission to mockery, torture, and death that he is someone who is really worthy of being worshipped. God could have testified to Jesus by parting the skies, blowing the heavenly trumpets, and presenting Jesus to us in all his glory. Instead, our eyes are open to who Jesus is, and we're filled with wonder and worship as we watch him dying unjustly so that the, uh, the guilty could escape justice. John adds a punch to this by giving us the image of a courtroom. Here's what he says in verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Uh, John is borrowing from the Old Testament to describe how witnesses were used during court cases where a defendant was facing capital punishment. The law stated that if a defendant was facing capital punishment, there had to be at least two witnesses to give credible evidence, or else it was just one person's word against another. And what John is applying here is he's saying that the blood or the baptism of Jesus, excuse me, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the water, the baptism of Jesus, amount to a sufficient witness to the divinity of Jesus, the inspiration of Jesus being somebody that we worship. But we have to find that in a certain way, this courtroom image is different than how we might imagine it. We are not the ones who are on trial. Instead, John is telling us that Jesus is the one who's put himself on trial. Jesus is telling us that uh, we're supposed to not only believe in his coming and to believe in his kingship, but we're to trust that in the courts he has taken the seat of the guilty so that we could take the seat of privilege. Would the Lord give us the faith to lay hold of this today and always? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your promises. Uh, your scripture tells us that your son has the words of eternal life. And so we pray that uh, you would train us to hear his voice and to follow after him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.